Alright, Kiss Army. You wanted the best? You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. Hello, welcome to your podcast. This is podcast number 43. I'm Gary Schaller. And I'm Ken Mills. And we've got a great show for you tonight, a great idea that Ken had and uh, some really cool guests. Ken, why don't you kick us off? To my left or right, depending on which state they're in, we have famous comic book writer and creator of the Ben 10 Show, a returning uh, combatant to all things podcast, it's Joe Casey. Hello. We also have Julian Gill, noted KISS author. Does that sound good, Julian? That sounds like an accusation, but it'll do. Okay, and he is also the creator of Kiss Fact, a great source for information of all things Kiss. And from Parts Unknown, we have Roland Sarazen, who is a film producer and a photographer. Nice to see you guys. And Roland, we had you on the show, I think, the night that Sonic Boom came out. Is that right? He was yeah. our last caller. Yeah, nice. I called in. That was actually the very first time I ever talked to Ken Mills, and I've been regretting it ever since. Because yeah, <laughs> Scar- scarred for life. Well, that'll no. happen. No, it's been great. Fun year. Well, it's good to have everybody on. A few days ago, I guess it was, or maybe last week, Ken called me. He said, I got this idea. Here it is. Boom. We're going to call it Compilation Conundrum. I'm like, I love it already. Join us for Podkiss 43, the case of the Compilation Conundrum. Kids have been accused of many things, the set lists being too stagnant. Uh, too much change in the musical style, not enough change in the musical style. And one of the things that they've been accused of a lot more over the past 15 years is the volume of compilations that have come out. And uh, I think there's probably a lot to say. Julian, I imagine, will have um, a good perspective on this because, Julian, you're, you're many things. You're a historian and a collector, a gentleman and a scholar. And uh, you probably know about as much about all the compilations that come out as anyone could possibly know. Is that fair? Off the top of my head, probably not, but on the website, (laughs) certainly. And I I did come prepared. I've got a stack of these things sitting on my desk right now, so that uh, they're within reach for easy reference. So your idea, I guess, basically was that we would be going through history and looking from the very start in the 1970s all the way up through the present day to look at you know, the various compilations, the different kinds of compilations, what works, what doesn't, and why. Um, you know, because some of them are just straight up, like, here's a bunch of studio recordings, nothing new to offer. And some of them are actually pretty cool in terms of offering, you know, either new songs or new takes on old songs. Or packaging. Right, yeah, cool packaging, cool ideas for how to group the songs. Love them or hate them, there's a whole lot of KISS compilations, and hopefully this show will give you some idea of what to go for. We're going to do a roundtable on what is basically the essential compilations that a fan should have or what would be great to give a new KISS fan. Where do we start, Gary? You know, I was looking at the the discography on KISSFAQ.com. You know, I think it starts really with the originals, and I know that that's not straight up a compilation. It's not really, you know, kind of random songs from different albums. But originals, I think, is where they started off with epic, elaborate packaging to resell what they've already sold. It, it, you know, it was kind of early to start repackaging things, given that the band had only been around for like three years. But they were, hit, you know, they'd hit a high with Alive, and Destroyer was starting to really build momentum, and that's when they released Originals. 
First there was kill, then hotter than hell, then breast to kill. What the fire, the frenzy, the fantastic cries of the Kiss Army. The three albums that caused a rock revolution are now especially priced in a historic three-record set with an exclusive Kiss history book and more. Kiss, the originals, get yours today. Don't miss the sensational all-new Kiss show. The smoke, the flames, the exploding sound and fury of Kiss. Saturday, July 10th at Roosevelt Stadium. You know, you mentioned the, the, the packaging there. Uh, it basically was a continuation of what we had seen with Alive. Uh, Mr. Bill O'Coin always thought that if they put as much as they could in the albums, it would stop people from bootlegging the actual albums so that you would get the Love Gun pop-up toy and things like that and the posters and whatnot. If you were such a big Kiss fan at the time, you had to have that pop-up gun and you had to have the 16-page booklet that came with the originals and you had to have that Kiss Army sticker. It was a must. Definitely. I think that booklet in the originals makes up for the horrific cover where they try to make it look like Gene's blowing fire over everybody. <laughs> so so who actually bought the originals when it came out? Anybody here? I got it used when I was maybe 12 years old. I was probably 82, and I started collecting all the old LPs. I went back to the very beginning, found it for something like 12 bucks or something like that. And I mean, that was... A lot of money to me, but I handed it over happily and probably stared at that booklet for the next eight hours or something straight. That's such a fundamental part of being a KISS fan, I think, is the hours spent looking at booklets that come in the records. It was really an amazing thing. I mean, whether it was the Alive cover or the Destroyer cover, like here with you, I mean, the originals, you had 16 pages. I mean, you talk about striking gold when you were a kid. You know, you, you couldn't stop. You had to look at every little intricate detail of Gene's boots, and you had to see how high off the floor Paul Stanley was. And I mean, you had to see all of it. Plus, it had that drawing of the ticket with the girl's boobies. <laughs> uh, Mine's still under my mattress. <laughs> Julian, did you, do you have any thoughts on the originals? You know, the originals was one of those really tough ones for me to actually get, you know, with becoming a fan in the mid-80s. It was not one I ever ran into until 1990, of all things, and I had to shell out 50 bucks for it, and it was just, I thought it was the coolest thing at that point early on in my collecting career. Uh, but as far as the compilation, as far as the material, you know, you'd heard it all before, but once you saw that big sticker and the trading cards, for a fan of the, you know, the later era, they just weren't doing that anymore. So it it made you realize what you'd missed. Did you um, get a copy that was pretty new, pretty good condition? Oh, it was an awesome shape. Yeah, no, I, I got it a few years ago, and and also paid a pretty hefty price, probably about forty bucks. And it was, it really is worth it. It's such a great. But great packaging and such great material. And you know, it's an interesting point. They had some uh, pretty cool album covers up until then, and, of course, Destroyer. But then the originals came out, and if you think back all the way back to 76, they were thinking from a marketing sort of standpoint. Obviously, they wanted to get other people to pay attention to the first few albums and then continue on from there. But as far as doing special packages, doing something that, that's bigger than life, just like the stage show and like the sound and everything else, even way back then, they were thinking about all that. And, Ken, I think you were talking about Bill O'Coin, and, and mm-hmm. Bill O'Coin was one of those guys with the great master plan. That's a great point in terms of, you know, going to see them, and it's just over the top, and that's the Kiss reputation. But at the same time, I mean, i got to wonder, Ken, did you, you know, did you get the record originals when it came out? Yeah, uh, I had Dress to Kill on 8-track. Right. I had a live on 8-track, and then I wow. bought the album. The album was amazing, you know, coming back home from James Way and seeing that. It was it was the greatest 
kiss porn, if if you will. You know what I'm saying? It was it was it was amazing. It, you I'm, I'm, you guys remember those pictures of like Jean's tongue with like that little bit of blood that's kind of spiraling off the end that just seems yeah, you, to go on forever. You can't tell where the tongue ends and the blood begins. Exactly. Yeah. And, th- and then there, and then there's that picture of Jean looking down on Ace. Right. And you're like, right. what the hell is going on in that picture? But but that's a that's about alive. So but the same thing happened with Kiss Originals, which I got for my birthday that year. Well, let me ask you this. All right. So, you, you know, it's 1976 and Kiss are, you know, sort of hit, hitting the highs for the first time. Right. And, and they have this reputation of being over the top, you know, huge, huge uh, sound and huge stage shows and, you know, really theatrical presentation. But the gall and audacity of releasing, you know, re-releasing your records and, and this 16-page sort of like tribute to yourself, patting yourself on the back thing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying like, you gotta, you gotta really hand it to them. They had ego. Chutzpah. Yeah, even then they had a real sense of self to do something like that. Balls but even. I, I will say this though, the, the interesting about what you just said, Gary, that even though it's a huge like, you know, ego stroke for themselves, the fact I was always blown away uh, that they put that first uh, press picture in the booklet that where they just they're wearing t-shirts and they just it's just they look as crude and as sort of like punk rock as you'd ever seen them up until that point certainly that wasn't a picture that you saw in magazines or it wasn't widely disseminated even in the 70s so I thought it was kind of for something that you could claim okay it's you know they're they're trying to say how great they are and yet they include that picture which shows them at their most meager beginnings. Right. That picture, that picture fascinated me for years. That's no, a great picture. I remember the Thank first you. time I saw it was that, um, I think it was on the extreme close-up video, and I love that. That photo is amazing. So, so then let's just go around the room, thumbs up, thumbs down. Should a KISS fan have originals? Julian? Oh, most definitely. It's uh, a very nice bit of collectible memorabilia from the band. Joe Casey. As a collectible, if, if you're if you're into that stuff, yes. But as an album, I mean, if you if you unless you don't already own the first three records, then it's you know it's pretty superfluous. A big word like gymnasium. Roland. Yeah. Uh, I would agree with those two. Uh, I think the packaging is something special, and not every Kiss fan has seen it. But if you've heard the albums and you know them, you're, you're probably okay. Gary? Uh, for the packaging, definitely. And if you're like me and you like to um, you know, pretend you're hearing something for the first time or like hear it on a, in a certain format to get a particular vibe, then absolutely yes. So cue the game show applause. It looks like we have a winner. Every Kiss right. fan should have originals. <laughs> Which brings us up to? Originals number two, March 1978, Japanese only. And this was sort of a, a limited release, right? Only Japan got to see it, and it was like basically, you know, originals, but it's, you know, the the fourth, fifth, and sixth studio albums, right? So Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, Love Gun, and what about the packaging, Julian? Was there anything special in that one? Well, uh, you've got your standard Japanese lyric book. Uh, I think it's an eight-page booklet on it, um, and of course four individual masks with instructions on how to wear them. Anybody know why Japan only? I mean, 1978, Kiss was hotter than hell. Uh, you would think that they could have done it again. I think it just tied in with their second tour. Just like in Japan, the first issue of Originals had been released around the time of the first tour. The record label just did the same again and repackaged all the albums that had come following that just for a one-off. Right. 
but don't you guys think that it could have bought them a little more time? I mean, if you look at what was going on with the band, like let's say that instead of giving us Dynasty, if they would have maybe taken a little time off, they could have done the originals too, or do you think it would have been killing the cow for you all? I don't think they they don't need they didn't need more time off. You know, the more time off they had, the worse it got. So no, a big fat no on that one. I agree, actually. I, I do agree. But I've heard a lot of people say that maybe they should have taken time off, let Pete get like this, let the guys do this, let people do that, and they could have come back together stronger. And I think the the, the longer that band was off off the road, now the studio, the, the worse things were getting. So I totally agree. So you know, it could. I'll tell you what. It could have worked if putting out originals too had meant. Uh, those four guys sitting and really listening to that material and saying, yeah, this. If that if that is what had happened, if they had been involved, you know, if it hadn't just been like a coin and Sean Delaney kind of putting it together, mm-hmm. uh, which which I assume is, might have been what happened anyway, right? That, then that would have been worth it because then maybe they would have said, all right, these these three albums are awesome. We got to pick up where we left off. Not that I have anything against Dynasty, you know, what happened happened and and all things must pass. But I think what with the originals in America on some level, it was a chance for fans who came on board with Kiss Alive or whatever. Now mm-hmm. the band was popular. It was that chance for them to get those albums that I mean, certainly the, you know, however many, you know, three million people that bought Kiss Alive did not buy the first three records. So this was a chance to maybe get some of those fans to buy those records. And you know the the you know, Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, and Love Gun are big platinum selling records. There's I don't think there was any need to reintroduce an audience to those particular records. They had them already. So then, who actually has this among the five of us? No, I've got it. Okay. Good shape. Good shape. And did you pay? Did you pay a lot, Julian? Uh, I think I paid like three fifty for it, and it's mint. To quote Gene Simmons, "Ouch." <laughs> It's, actually, it's just one. It's one of those albums I had to have again. Way back in the early '90s, it was uh, where I was at the time, uh, Pennsylvania. It was like a figment of everyone's imagination. Who was Kiss fans? No one believed it really existed. Right. Um, so it was one of those ones in the uh, early internet era when I had the chance to finally get. I had to have it just to prove to myself that it really did exist. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I get that. I don't have it, but I, but when I was really young, a friend of mine who had been collecting Kiss stuff over a year, if it was in a magazine, he cut it out. If it was a poster, he saved it. And it was probably this foot long, foot high tall stack of just Kiss stuff. There, there were old tour books and all kinds of things. And in there was one mask from Originals 2, and it was Peter's mask. It didn't have the, the string thing on it, but it was just the mask. That's the, that's the only part of it I've actually ever seen. There, there are um, CD copies of this. Yeah. <laughs> that are bootlegged, of course. But uh, boy, some people can make some really nice bootlegs nowadays. But I, I've, I've never owned it. Uh, there is someone who um, made a bootleg CD for me of the uh, best of the solo albums, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, same, same person, by the way. Oh, yeah, you have mm-hmm. it too, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's great. I mean, he took such care. It's a great job. Excellent and I, job. Yeah, and I love it. it. You know, it's something that I do listen to, and it's a cool, kind of cool thing to have. You know, if Kiss released CD, you know, re, you know, reproductions of originals with that packaging and originals too, and all those things, is there anyone among us who wouldn't buy them? I wouldn't buy them. 
I don't think I would at this point because I have originals and I really have no need for mask that would be small in a CD case. You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't have like a like a little gimp. Well, that's why I keep you around. But uh, other oh, than that, you know. Oh, um, but no, no, I I don't think I would buy them. I think that hmm. there's an audience for it though. Didn't they basically put originals out without all the cool packaging not that long ago, Julian? Yeah, they did. Both Originals and Originals 2, that uh, Disunion box set for Japan, came with a, uh uncut um, CD-sized print of both covers that you could pop out of the cardboard and fold up and put your special uh, mini LP-type CDs into. It came with the OB, but none of the other inserts. And it was cooler than hell as well. I was going to say real quick on the album focus, Kiss Fact, it says that uh, Aim dropper. some copies have been found to come with a 12 by 12 Victor insert autographed by the band, dude. The, the couple people here who have it, did you do you have that? I do not on mine, but uh, that 12 by 12 Victor insert has also shown up in other releases from around the same time. So at the time that I wrote that, it was assumed that it was only applicable to the originals, too but it may well have been used elsewhere. What is a, what, what is that? What is a Victor insert? It's just a, it's a plain, it's the same size as the cards, uh, so LP-sized uh, piece of cardboard. I believe it had just a, an outline with the Victor logo in the bottom with the band signatures uh, in various places on the center of the card. Oh, Victor wow. is, is the label. That's right. Oh, okay, okay, right. Let's go around the room. Is it an essential thing for a KISS fan to buy? Okay. I would, well, that, say, I would say this is not an essential. Same here. It's a luxury item. It's it's nice eye candy again, but uh, it's certainly uh, not worth having. If you're going to pick up any of the Japanese compilations, be it Originals or Originals 2, I would say do neither and go for the whole Story of Hell uh, cassette compilation. Well, there you go. But isn't it interesting that Original gets a thumbs up all around, but Originals 2... Right. But there's because there's history. I mean, Originals is an important record or an important compilation. Yeah, but don't you think that that's um, because it's relatively American history? I mean, I'm sure that for a Japanese fan, it's something that they remember from their childhood, you know, from their from the time they were a teen. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, and then the nostalgia factor is important. It's about what Joe was saying, which is that it served a function. You know, Originals 1 served a function for the people who didn't have those first three records. But, you know, I'm guessing even in Japan, like Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, and Love Gun, they probably had those records. And, you know, I could see where Japanese fans probably do want that because it was on the shelves at that time. But only if if you were a KISS fan, 1978, Japan, would I see that uh, having that kind of nostalgic pull. Otherwise, it's like what Julian was talking about, a kind of holy grail for collectors. Julian, do you know how this sold over in Japan? I've got no idea on that one. That would be interesting to find out because maybe it didn't do as well as they thought it. I think I mean, that's a distinct possibility. You've got to remember, at the same time in Japan, there was, uh, I, I alluded to it earlier, the story of hell um, on sale. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure the exact timing. Both of these were out. So you've got the originals, the originals too, within a period of a year. You've also got the story of hell, which was the cassette tape version of both of these. That was uh, three double cassette volumes, again, all six of the studio albums at that point. So that's quite a lot of product in a short period of time for what was essentially a small market. 
What's the packaging like on that? I mean, what are the covers? On the Story of Hell? Mm-hmm. It's uh, just plain white covers. You can see it up on the uh, FAQ, but it's plain white covers with the, uh, like, little slip cases over the two cassettes. Mm-hmm. One side has one album cover, the other the other album cover with the track listing. It's really pretty plain. Um, they're obviously OBs integrated onto the sides of them. Um, right. You know, it's kind of cool looking as a cassette tape set, but uh, nowhere near as interesting as the originals too. Each one also has, you know, the uh cassette size lyric inserts as well. So I'm sure those would be fun to read. But uh I've never <laughs> found one of these on the market. Cool. Well let's talk about that uh big silver bundle of joy, double platinum. The KISS Double Platinum album, a tribute unprecedented in music history. Here's Neil Bogart. For the success story of the decade, Casablanca honors KISS with Double Platinum. Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Peter Schiff, and Ace Frehley. 20 Double Platinum songs remixed and brand new Strutter 78, KISS Double Platinum. Which was released a month after the Originals 2 compilation. Uh, one of the, what I feel is a pretty interesting album. Thoughts, Julian? Oh, I love Double Platinum. It was my first compilation way back <laughs> in, in the earliest days of becoming a Kiss fan. Mm-hmm. I went down to my record store and I do believe it may well have been the first Kiss album I ever owned, um, from the classic era. So it was my introduction. And I didn't know for years just how uh, special it was because I hadn't seen the Mylar cover. I bought mine on cassette. Oh, wow. So uh, it's, uh, musically, it was a, a, a very good introduction to the band. When did, this record, when did this record come out exactly? Like what month did this record come out? April 1978. Okay. And it was platinum a month later. Did double platinum ever actually go double platinum? Nope. <laughs> Zing, um, Roland. What what are your thoughts about double? Yeah, platinum? I, yeah. I loved uh, double platinum. Is my first compilation too, uh, especially the uh, as far as the original band goes. Uh, the, you know the embossed logo that you could run your hands over. I mean, what else can you say? You've got some remixes. Um, those were a lot of fun, especially. Uh, on Detroit Rock City where there's, you go, oh, there's no car crash, you know. Uh, things like that, just, you remember the first time that you ever heard a remix of a song that you knew so well, even when you were nine years old or, or maybe a little older. And something about that tactile contact of touching that, that raised Kiss logo um, and then seeing your fingerprints left on it. It's just one of those things that's burned in your memory, and you don't even know why. But yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it's probably my favorite compilation. Now, how many, uh, how many of us opened the record? You know, those, those big faces, and if you tilted it the right way, you go, wow, you're, we're seeing them without makeup because you can uh, kind of, screw, you know, your eyes could screen out the makeup and sort of see the outline of their faces. Of course. I, I, I absolutely it. did. I, I did the old thing where you'd lay the piece of paper down. Yeah. yeah. And, and it really didn't yield any great results. I laid it down and traced it. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, the only one who looks, you know, who looks like he looks, if you do that, is Paul. 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 Yeah. But he, Paul looks, I mean, yeah. seriously, you could take a picture of Paul from back then and kind of cover the star, and there's three quarters of his face. You know what right. I mean? So it wasn't. Absolutely. 
it wasn't that much of a, uh, a leap, if you will. Uh, Sean Delaney produced this, and I think he did a fantastic job. Anybody else think so? Absolutely. I think, I think in hindsight, though, Strutter 78 is a bit of an odd duck trying to take a song from 1974 and turning it somewhat disco-like, I think was the point there. I, I've always kind of wondered how they did that, what they did to it. Did they record new drums? Did they just move things around in the track so that there was, you know, so they repeat the, the tag? Oh, it's a whole, it's a whole new performance. It's like an entirely new recording. Uh, it's, it's been rumored and never confirmed that it might not, it might be Sean Delaney on the drums and that's, that's never ever been confirmed as far as I know. Um, but it's, it's soup to nuts, a, a brand new version. Uh, and I, I'm actually a fan. I think it's, I th- you know, I, I think it's great. It's probably my second favorite version behind the, uh, no. First would be Alive, then would be the, the 73 demo. And then this might come in third for me of, of Strutter. Paul seems to be involved a little bit more on this album than anyone else. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, just a few minutes ago, I apologize if I was typing a lot, but I I went to find this thing that that Ron Albanese wrote, and he's a great writer and a great humorist, and and wrote a lot about Kiss. And we uh, want to have him on the show. We will have this guy on the show because he's. I know he's. Uh, I've talked to him about it. I think you have as well. But yes. Yeah, he's super funny. Wrote these things. Um, if you go to kissasylum.com uh, and go to the vault section. Uh, he has this thing called the Kiss Thought Vault. Issue number four is called Double Platinum, Double Stanley, because what he notices is that there's, in, I think there's like at least one entire side of the four sides of this compilation that is I- exclusively Paul Stanley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's even a graphic here that's pretty funny. It's like a reproduction of the album cover, but it says Double Stanley on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, I think it's a great must-have compilation, and I think that um, you know there's a few songs that really stand out. Hard Luck Woman, I mean, Sorter 78, for starters, is very cool, I think, not least of all because you have these great guitar solos by Ace. I mean, he just nails, nails it, hits it out of the park. Um, the pinch harmonics that he gets in those solos, just fantastic. I love the... There's some kind of scraping sound. It sounds like fingers on the fretboard during the choruses. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Uh, that's that's those uh, humbucker pickups on the Les Paul. They would pick up sort of an odd feedbacky quick frequency when you when you play them, you know, when you would pluck the strings, and that's that's usually what you're hearing on uh, those the, things. The uh, y- y- like I'm not talking about the pinch harmonics though. What I'm talking about is the the uh, you know during the choruses. You know, you get everybody says she's looking good. That little sound. Oh, that's just the fingers on the string going from one chord to the other. Right, and it's so. I mean, it's just so pronounced and so perfectly timed. You know, it's almost like you know when in disco songs that have that like whip cracking sound or the like pew kind of sound effects. Like Mm -hmm. this was just, you know, it kind of makes that part of the song. I love the extra um, kind of improv vocals that Paul does during the you know the fade out. Um, all of that stuff, really very cool performance. Hard Luck Woman is also worth hearing, I think. I love the fact that the, the drums don't start off right away the way they do in the original version. You just get a lot of nice acoustic guitar and Peter's vocals. Right. And that and that version of Dr. Love 
is my favorite version. Really? Yeah, with that weird uh, kind of spooky intro. Yeah. My uh, favorite version of Dr. Love is from the Dr. Pepper commercial. Oh, for God's sake. I actually made Joe Casey say, oh, for God's sake. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We should play here. I think we played it once before a few years back. But the single version of Strutter 78, Julian, you've heard this, am I right? Oh, definitely, yeah. That's, I can't even remember what the bloody difference is. Oh, dear.
I do agree with you, Gary, on uh, Hard Luck Woman. I really do like that version a lot. That's a great version. Yeah, it's just neat to hear the, you know, like the something you don't often hear in a Kiss song is just the acoustic guitar and, and singing. Um, you know, and, and of course, everything has that slightly more disco. I mean, it sounds like 1978. The drums are prominent, particularly the kick drum, and the bass is prominent. Um, and, and that really stands out. And Delaney did a really good job with a difficult task because even though he's also, you know, he's playing with a lot of stuff that was produced by Kramer and produced by, um, you know, Kerner and Wise, etc., he also has to factor in there the Ezrin stuff, which is unmixable. You know, you right. can't really, <laughs> you can't play with that stuff because of how Ezrin produces. And, and the way that he mixes the tracks, you know, and, and, and Delaney did a great job of having everything kind of sound unified. Agreed. What do you 100%. guys, what, what do you guys think about the version of Detroit Rock City on that one with the extra, uh, get down in the chorus and, and a couple of little changes in there? What do you think about that version? I like it. You know, in comparison with the edit that they put out as a single, it's much less of a butcher job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels, it feels different than what you're used to with the um, with the studio version, you know, not just with the some of the sound effects, but you know, it's just a better job at making it more of a standalone track. Right. That was one thing that stood out to me a lot when I first heard it. Yeah, it's a neat one, and I like the uh, you get that line that's not in the uh, in the original. You're gonna lose your life in Detroit Rock City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good uh, God, I haven't. I don't think I've heard this album in. Maybe 20, 25 years. You guys have convinced me. i got to go out and get the CD of this goddamn thing now. The last thing I'll say about this is that Black Diamond also has a, a cool uh, change to the intro, you know, where you get this, um, you know, again, you get the, like, acoustic guitar without any singing. You just get to hear that nice, uh, you know, two-part guitar harmony right there. It's really right. pretty. Um, and then, of course, they tag the rock bottom intro onto She. Just kind of a neat um, juxtaposition. I really like that. But you, worth having, I think. I'm sorry, that rock bottom intro is just one of those WTF moments in history. Why <laughs> would you put that on the beginning of She? It's like, come on. It, it, it's one of those things. It doesn't seem to make any sense in any way why you would put that on She. I mean, just two completely different styles of music, rock bottom well, and let's She. See. Well, well let's what? see. Sean, Sean Delaney produced it, and I believe the joke was cocaine, it's a hell of a drug. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, 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 would, that would work as a reason. Well, I mean, I'll tell you one reason why they might have done it, and who knows. Had they not done so, Ace would have only had one credit on the record. Ooh, there you go. I mean, you know, again, I don't know if that has anything to do with anything. Peter only has one credit on the record. But if if they had left it as it was, you would have had Ace for Cold Gin and Peter for Beth, both of which are on side four. Uh, but Cold Gin, that's a hell of a credit to have. And I And I think that's one of those songs on the compilation to which they did Nothing, right? It's just exactly uh, the same as the stu- the original version, right? Don't mess with the ace, man. Right. Well said. Huh. Or don't be an acehole. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway. Uh, so then let's go around the room. Thumbs up or thumbs down on double platinum. Julian Gill? Hey, let's give that double thumbs up. Ah, two of them. Okay. Uh, Mr. Joe Casey? Uh, I'm uh, Thumbs up, big time. I'm even more curious than I was before. i got to listen to this thing again. Mr. Roland Sarazen. Yeah, thumbs up. It, it, it's, it's, it's still my favorite compilation. Gary Schaller will give a thumbs up, and I will too.
Okay, so our next uh, items up for bid is the best of the solo albums from November 1979 release in Australia, Europe, South Africa, with different tracks and different covers. But, uh, Julian, what would, which would you say is the definitive best of the solo albums? Which country had that? You know, I'm going to go with the original German Bellafon issue. Well, of course, that goes without saying. No, I, I, I'm, I'm totally taking your word for it. I'm not a person that feels like there really needs to be a best of solo albums myself. I think when you say the best of solo albums, you're getting what should have been the Kiss release in 1978. Rather than oh. four individual albums, you're getting Kiss. What a bomb that album would have been, though. <laughs> well, I don't know. You, you still get New York Groove on it and, uh, and rip it out no matter what, and maybe one of Paul's songs. So I think that probably could have carried it much further than any of the five singles issued off the solo albums. Yeah. What was the fifth? Oh, that was uh, Peter's. Uh, Peter had two singles released. And oh, they, really? Yeah, which were they? Uh, first one was uh, You Matter to Me, and the second one, I believe, was... Don't You Let the Me Toss Down? And, toss and yeah, Don't You Let Me Down. Yeah, don't you Whoever let that was, was right. Down. Yeah, yeah. It should have been I Can't Stop the Rain. That should have been the single. I love that song. Me I too. I, I'm serious. That It was a missed opportunity. Yeah, you better and that, that song, in. incidentally, is on the original German version. So they, there we go. So yeah, that version, th- that German best of solo albums is the first place where I saw the altered logo. So then <laughs> who actually here has the best of the solo albums? And I don't mean a bootleg given to us by a great guy. I have a cassette version of it that I got sometime in the in the early 90s and I, I just don't know where it came from I just literally you know it was in the record store and I bought it um, I, I, I couldn't even tell you what version it is I, mean, I couldn't even tell you the track listing it was just odd and I picked it up I remember in the 80s you could get like all all the solo albums for like a buck 99 and I'm talking even picture disc yeah. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? I got no. two of them for a buck each. And yeah. Records, and they had a little notch at the top that was taken mm-hmm. out. Of the Are you album. talking about like the, the cutout then? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so then I remember seeing at a drugstore there was this Best of the Solo albums, and it had the well the standard Kiss logo on it. And I remember uh, putting it in my car, but the first song sounded good. It, every once in a while, you'd get like a cassette tape back in the 80s that would just like mess up your tape player. Does anybody remember this? Or am I yes. just me? Yes. And like, and like you'd have to clean like this smudge that would be on the tape. And I don't know what the hell caused that or why, but I never listened to it ever again. And I sold it for like 20 bucks one day. But, uh, that's the closest I had to having anything. Yeah, does anyone have the track listing? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, this is yeah I have it here. Hold, Hold Me, Touch Me was uh, the last. Yeah, it was track number 12 on the on the American release, I think. What's the full track listing, though? Can we yeah, yeah Roland, use your, use your announcer skills and okay. give us... All right, well, we'll start with Ace. Uh, number one, New York Groove. Number two, Rip It Out. Three, Speeding Back to My Baby. Those are three good choices there. Four is Peter's You Matter to Me. Then Tossin' and Turnin'. Then Hooked on Rock and Roll. Track seven is Gene, Radioactive. Then Mr. Make Believe, then See You in Your Dreams, and the last Yay. year of Paul's Tonight You Belong to Me, Move On, and Hold Me, Touch Me. And that, of course, being the track listing to the most common version, the 1980 <coughs> European issue. That is so interesting, though, that even as a best of, they strict, they kept it to the you know three A songs and three Peter songs and three Gene right. songs and three Paul songs, as opposed to really trying to make 
an album out of it with, you know, where they mixed it up a little bit. That's interesting. Probably, probably also proving that the band didn't have a whole lot to do with the uh, track choices. Yes, right. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that Paul kind of got shafted on that one because the – those tracks are not the the best tracks on that album. They're not. You're right. And I think um, you know, going back to that idea of like the would be 1978 Kiss record, um, or like you know the follow up to Love Gun. You know, those would have not. You know, those would not have been the best picks uh, to represent Paul. You know, I, like something like Love and Chains or Wouldn't You Like to Know Me. Goodbye. You know, goodbye. Like those those songs would have made more sense, I guess. Well, then let's go around the room. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. Julian Gill. I've got to go with a thumbs down on this. It's such an odd mix of songs from those albums that it's really tough to put together a really quality track listing for what would be called the best of the solo albums. <laughs> that certainly is not the case. Joe Casey. I would say if I put my sentimentality aside, it's a, it's a thumbs down for me, too. Okay. Using that sexy announcer voice all the way from Portland, Oregon, Roland Sarazen. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would have to say thumbs down. I I would rather choose my own tracks, make my own. Gary? I'm glad I have it on vinyl. Thumbs down. I just want to listen to those records. Thumbs down. So far we're pretty unanimous here. We haven't had any dissenting votes, have we? No. No. Okay. Ah. I mean, it's right. it's cool to see. It's cool to see that record, but like no one needs to rush out to buy it. Which is kind of a hard thing to do anyway, so. Okay, up next. Killers. Killers from 1982, non-USA release to everywhere else except America, basically Japan, Europe, Australia, South America, South Africa, elsewhere. So it was really North North America being left out of the picture on this one. What's so weird about that though is that I got it of all places at a Caldor. Do people remember that store? Didn't they sell TVs and stuff? And yeah, it was like a big, you know, before there were like Walmart and Target, there was, uh, you know, Caldor. It was like between a five and dime and a, you know, giant box store. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they had like a pretty decent record section, all things considered. And I guess they somehow they got this import. They really had a decent record section, you know, other, otherwise being like a kind of unremarkable store. Um, but they had stuff like killers and I'm so glad I found it because I did. That was one of those things that I did have on vinyl that you just couldn't find everywhere else. Um, you know, when it originally came out. Um, and uh, I'm glad I had it. Very cool. Yeah, but by the late 80s, it was pretty commonly available in the United States, along with Best of the Solo Albums as a Polygram Special Import. Uh, if you remember way back then, or mm-hmm. if you saw these, they came with a PSI sticker on the back of them in stores. Yep. I think I got mine in a Sam Goody around the time. So oh, cool. uh, um, they weren't exactly obscure. I got mine at a Rite Aid drugstore. Like back, I'm back almost when it certain came out. That, yeah. I'm yeah. almost certain I got mine at Sam Goody too. That sounds right. But but it was kind of like in the closeouts, if that makes any sense. Right. Because they did, along with the solo albums I mentioned earlier, they did have brand new albums and they were full price. But like Killers was only like three ninety nine, and it was like they were blowing through them and they were just sitting there at the time. Of course, this was probably around what eighty five, eighty six. It was already old news in a way. Now, I got in mind, I, I think, in 82, believe it or not, and and I think it was full price, and, you know, it, it was the only place where you could really, uh, you know, bring home a, a clear and, and decent picture of that lineup with that uh, makeup and costume, because this was still before Creatures came out. So we have the four new songs on there. Are there. Is there any reason to pick this up 
other than the four new songs, is there any single variations or anything to this one? You've got remixes again on this album. So just like they had done in 78, they went back and uh, the record label anyway cleaned up the sonics on some of the songs. Because right. there is there is some extra punch and a little extra echo at times. You've got Detroit Rock City um, being a different version, not the single edit, but also not the album and also not the uh, double platinum. You've got uh, God of Thunder starting right with the guitar. There's no, um, you know, there's like the little kid thing is not in there. And then what's the, oh, yeah, I think this was the, the first time that you could sort of get the single of the live, the live version of Rock and Roll All Night, you know, without rushing out and buying the, the single itself, the 45, right? right? Yeah, so, I mean, the actual 45. Plus the track listing, depending on which version you get, was kind of cool. Like, you know, there's some things on there that wasn't your ordinary... You know, Kiss compilation stuff. I think like Shandy Escape from the Island was on there, depending on which version. Yeah, Shandy's only on the Japanese version, and oddly, if you think about how Kiss has performed Shandy in Australia <laughs> on so many tours, Talk to Me was on the Australian version. So go but, figure. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, actually strange. And here's here's an ad. This is kind of a rare thing to hear, right? Is an ad for Killers. So give this a listen. A collection of Kiss Killers. So we have the four new songs. Are they worth getting this album for? Yes. Actually, the reason to get this album is the song Down on Your Knees, which is a probably the lost Kiss classic of all time. What a great, wow. great song. Totally disagree. Joe, you've got to say more, because that is the first and only time I, I've ever heard such like a strong, um, you know, like thumbs up for that. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. It's great. I mean, it's the, Paul's vocal is fantastic. It's like Kiss doing an ACDC <coughs> kind of song, which, you know, they, they never, it, it's, it's just such an anomaly. They didn't even go further in that direction than Creatures of the Night. They kind of took this left turn and went to this more, you know, metal kind of, kind of bombastic thing. But Down on Your Knees had some swing to it. Um, you know, this, the, the, the part where Paul is just singing, you know, with just the drums behind him. Mm-hmm. It's just a great, great song. You know what? I'm gonna on, have to... oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and Down on Your Knees is the one that's uh, co-written by Brian Adams, right? Yep. Yeah. Nice. You know, I, I'm going to have to revisit that song now. Because it's, it's one of those things, like you said, it is overlooked. And I think I've overlooked it for a, a pretty long time. I never really... I, mean, I know what you're talking about when you say, now that you got me real worked up, what are you? You know, like that kind of thing. Hey, guys, I think that Kiss just found a new lead vocalist. God help me. <laughs> God help me. Uh, no, but, you know, like, that that's true. I hadn't really thought of that. I guess the closest approximation on, on Creatures is maybe Keep Me Coming. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Paul kind of doing his kind of barroom singing, which he got away from 
quite quickly in the 80s when he was trying to break glass with every, you know, album. But this is him at his kind of ballsiest, I think. You know, I mean, especially when you put it up against something like, I mean, the, the other songs are good, but something like Partners in Crime, which to me is so sleepy compared to Down on Your Knees, you know. I just, I really, I always love that song. And I, Julian, maybe you know, who is the guitar player on that? Who These is are all, all supposedly Bob. Okay. It's Bob, I'm, so, I'm Bob, I'm so much better than Ace Kulik. <laughs> <laughs> Best you ever played, Bob Kulik. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did a pretty, pretty thorough, pretty good job, you know, on those leads, I guess. Uh, you know, they, this was still, I think, when they didn't want to let on that it was, uh, they didn't want to make it too obvious, right? I mean, you know, by the time you get to Creatures, like, some of the lead guitar on that record sounds nothing like Ace. Like, stuff he couldn't, just not within his vocabulary, and that's no... They weren't even Ace. trying to hide it at that point. Exactly, exactly. Now, now Bob's, Bob's been pretty clear on this, that when he came in to do this album, he was told just to let rip in his own way and stop. Right. He didn't have to try and pretend to be anyone else. And that's really clear from the whole Sonic signature. But, I mean, if you look at Paul as well, who's he trying to be? Because, you know, he hasn't gone falsetto like he did later. He's singing balls. He's singing from his gut. And he's all... You know, everything about these four songs is they're very melodic, but they have some, uh, subs, you know, metal substance behind them. I so, want to know, everybody kind of was up in arms when I said down on your knees is the, is the gem. What do you guys think the gem of the four songs is? I like Nowhere to Run. It's really good. Song. That's yeah. my favorite, too. Which to me sounds like it should have been on his 78 solo album. Yeah, the only thing that, that keeps that... From, I mean, that is a great song. The thing that keeps that for me from the top spot is that it's got, like you say, Ken, it is that sort of Paul Stanley solo production with those background vocals that kind of drone during the chorus, which to me take away from the crunch of the song. Down on Your Knees has none of that, which is what kind of puts it over the top for me. But that is, to me, the next best song. That's a great, I love that, uh, you know, you can see the clip on YouTube where at, during the Kiss conventions they try to play that song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and they get maybe through, you know, the first chorus, maybe. But even that bit, it's pretty exhilarating to watch them try to play it. Yeah, right, it well- is. That's uh, Ball Stanley on lead vocal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys kept throwing balls around. I mean, throwing more balls around than the World Series. Hell. (laughs) I like that. That's pretty good. What what about I'm a Legend Tonight? For many years, that was my favorite song. For these four songs and for what it says, you know, it's a great song about Kiss, about, you know, so many different things lyrically. 
I loved it, but it's been overtaken and, you know, by nowhere to run, so. Now, wasn't I'm a Legend Tonight part of The Elder at one point? No, there's a, there's a fake mix of Nowhere to Run and Just the Boy that's kind of combined together that circulates on bootlegs, and that's the only one I've ever heard of, and that was fake to begin with, so. Now, is there, is there any, is there any sort of even, uh, secretive explanation, you know, like something that people don't know. Why is it that it's four Paul Stanley songs as opposed to, I mean, no Gene Simmons songs at all in this group of new new songs? Well, <laughs> uh, I guess the default answer, right, when it comes to this sort of thing is Gene didn't care and didn't show up. You know, Gene, <laughs> you got to remember how busy Gene was in the early 80s with uh, he's starting to go off on his tangents how much of Creatures was he around for? I mean, Jimmy Haslip was kept pretty busy on bass, um, as were some other people. So, well, you know, also he, he doesn't get any songs, and is he on bass? Is the other? I was gonna, that's, that's the other question. I mean, does, does he even appear on these songs at all in any way? Probably nowhere, not. N- nowhere to run and down on your knees is Gene. Well, what about Eric Carr? Is he there? Eric Carr is on drums. Uh, but does it, doesn't this sound like? Uh, an early drum machine at some point. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from anybody's performance. It's no, no, that's you know what that is though. That's what Joe was saying about ACDC is that you get that Phil Rudd drumming where, um, you know, the guy is like a human metronome, right? Like that's what you could say about the ACDC drums. It's like a me- listening to a metronome. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, and that's what. I, I mean, I, I, assuming it's Eric, and I don't, I've never heard otherwise. I mean, that's what you just have, damn, bat, bat, you know, just straight, perfect drumming. And I would say, to go further down the ACDC route, I mean, we all know, especially in the 80s, KISS was not a band that was, uh, well, they were easily led by their peers. And we're t- this is post Black, Black and ba- uh, Back in Black, which was probably the biggest rock record of the, you know, the, since the first Van Halen record in terms of sort of cultural penetration. So it, it, it totally makes sense that a guy like Paul Stanley, who's kind of this musical sponge, would go, hey, you know, Back in Black, that album, you know, went nuts. I'm going to write a song like that. And, you know, hence you get something like Down on Your Knees. Well, don't you think that there had to be some distancing from The Elder at this point when these uh, were recorded? Well, but at the same time, they're they're wearing The Elder outfits on the cover, which, by the way, is does definitely knock out the uh, originals as the worst cover, not only for the <laughs> compilations, but just in general, that weird pink, you know, pink and orange lightning motif. I just don't even know what the hell they were thinking. Whoever did that, I mean, that that to me made it seem like uh, a throwaway album because even something as misguided as the comic strip on the cover of Unmasked had a theme and it had some graphic design to it and this thing was just a goddamn abomination <laughs> I just want to clarify something Joe your feelings on the cover for Killers could you tell us what you think about it I hate it I just it's so awful it's, it's I mean it's like somebody uh, at Polygram said okay we got to do this Kiss compilation I'm going to key off Paul's headband and that's how I'm going to kind of that's, Paul's headband seems to be the theme of of this album. So I'm going to do an album cover that sort of accentuates the fact that Paul has this weird headband. And that's exactly what you get. You have to to remember that Paul's aura is purple and Paul has four songs on this album that are new. So 
It provides unity. And I, <laughs> and I think that what Julian's trying to say is that this album could have been called Music from the Headband. <laughs> oh, boy. You know what? I bought, I bought it at Caldor, and it looks what, like... The, wait, what, a, a headband? <laughs> I bought Killers at Caldor, and it looks like the, it was a picture taken at Caldor. <laughs> Come right this way. Check out our new stereo equipment. Oh, by the way, that's Kiss. <laughs> Roland, what was your favorite of the four tracks? I think Nowhere to Run. It, um, just a, it's just a great Paul song to me. Um, but I, when we, you guys were talking about uh, I'm a Legend tonight. That one to me sounds like the Missing Creatures track. Personally, if it was done just a little bit different, I think that one would have always fit on Creatures just perfectly. Julian, which one is the Missing Creatures track? Nowhere to Run. Okay. Yeah, that, was the one that, was, to run. that was the one that was intended to be released on the album and that they should have. It was, but, you know, could it, could it stand up to the uh, other power ballads? Look at it this way. You know, this is the first real power ballad of 80s Kiss. Before we step off of Killers, though, I just want to say, does anyone else listen to I'm a Legend Tonight and think about that montage scene that's in every 80s movie where the, the protagonist is, like, beat down and training to to, re- <laughs> you know, to get back to the, you know, to the top and get the girl he loves. and Probably wearing a headband while they're working Probably out. wearing a headband. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, that is the mon- that's the montage song, right? Sure. Thumbs up, thumbs down around the room. Mr. Julian Gill. You know, you got to give it a thumbs up. It's got four, four great Paul songs on it. Mr. Joe Casey. Yeah, big thumbs up. Mr. Roland Sarazen. Thumbs up. New music and uh, an interesting mix of classics. Gary Schaller. What Roland said. And I give it a thumbs up as well. Another clean sweep for Killers. Then, then we skip way ahead, right, to 1988. Uh, to a comp- well, well, are you going to skip all the way to 1988, or are you going to talk about the singles released in Australia in 85? Uh. Interesting. Go ahead. Okay. The singles, a compilation of the singles released in Australia. You know, it was it was it was basically sold mail order, and it really did feature songs that were singles in Australia. Um, it's pretty commonly available, so I don't know how many people have it in their collection, but I've got a cassette sitting over here. Wow, I'm on this website called Kiss Fact, and I'm looking it up. See here. You know, it's got Then She Kissed Me on a Kiss compilation. Wow. What's wrong with that? And I. So. Huh. Let's see. Is it on, let's see, non-standard albums, uh, the singles. Oh, here it is. Okay. That's a cool cover. I like this cover. It's, it's very original. They're all shaped like symbols. And yeah. there's a certain unity with the silver or platinum color of double platinum that these are gold symbols. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and it is a neat uh, bunch of tracks. Also very cheap looking at the same time. Yeah, it looks K-Telly, you know, yeah. like, get signals from Kiss by K-Tel. It, it, it's probably the equivalent in Australia of that sort of thing. Um, it's, I, If I recall, I haven't had the LP version for quite a few years, uh, but I think it was printed or pressed on 20-gram vinyl. Um, so if you wow. didn't... If you weren't really careful with it, it would uh, actually melt around your finger while trying to put it on the turntable. When you said mail order, Julian, that kind of says it all to me. You know, if we're going to talk about the singles from Australia, I mean, isn't it only fair that we, that we talk about O Rock the Kiss or a Rock and Rolleando toda la No, noche? no, no. That we're getting off the beaten path. We're talking oh about something that someone can go 
and buy somewhere as long as there's still record stores. You know, well, we're kind of, poder de la música. Well, I mean, O Rock de Kiss is as valid as the originals too, since that was only released in Japan. And O Rock, O Rock was the Brazilian equivalent. And has a nice picture with Mark St. John on the cover, I might add. Wow. The Heavens on Fire video. Yeah. Very cool. All these pictures and information can be found in the information section of KISSFAG. That's right. Uh, That that sounds like a segue to shut up. We want to talk about Shikara. So that brings us to Shikara. May from 1988, Japanese compilation, including an iron-on patch. And Chikara is the symbol that we see on the cover of uh, Crazy Nights, is that right? Yes. Okay. And Hotter Than Hell originally. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And it symbolizes power, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Mine is signed by Eric Carr, Eric Singer, and Bruce Kulick. Oh, yeah, you have it, huh? Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Is it, is it worth... Yeah. I, I was there, he was there. Wait a minute, Ken. Are you? Do you mean to tell me that Eric Singer signed his name to something that he didn't play on? Dude, if Bill O'Coin would have been standing there, I would have had him sign it. You know, that's just a major problem, Ken. You know, if you Sean Delaney would have been there, I would have had you him. You really shouldn't have people sign. People shouldn't sign things they didn't play on. You know, this that's is a, a real major. Problem. That's a major faux pas. Doesn't he know he's only supposed to sign Olivia Newton-John records? There you that's go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> is there any reason to have Chikara? Nope. Ah. Nope. You know, it's got some remixes on it, uh, mostly the Creatures of the Night stuff, and of course some early copies came with the patch, but in terms of it being a very important album, it's not. It's uh, highly collectible, just because it was another Japan-only release, but it's also highly bootlegged, which is a big problem for anyone actually wanting to own it. I, I would say yes, uh only because mine's signed by Eric Carr. So basically, no on Shikara. Please listen to part two of Podcast 43, The Compilation Conundrum. <laughs>